All right, here's my route. I gotta get really. I gotta get. Hold on, let me relax right. on some weed. Real Put quick. your eight mile hoodie on. No, I yeah, I'm gonna drink. What was his a, name? What was the rabbit? Eminem. No, didn't he go by the rabbit? Well, no, Marshall Mathers is his real name. He goes by Eminem. No, in the movie. The movie about Eminem. Oh my god, you're so annoying. All right, here's the rap. Here's the rap. All right, I gotta get. Liz, can you give me a beat? No. Can you like with your fingers or something? Can you give me a beat? Come on. Just say come on in the come come on come on okay fucking fine I'll just do it. Hey Liz, you're a jerk and I think you're a snitch. In fact, I think you're a big fucking bitch. Let's hope that, you know, sometimes we do like, uh, you know, we, we do the intros and outros after we record the interviews usually. And I'm always like, I hope the person doesn't listen. <laughs> but, but Jody said her kid listens to the show. So shout out Jody's kid, but please do not show your mom um, this uh, episode of the show or be like, actually, it starts like 10 minutes in. It's crazy. Yeah. They fucked up the thing on it. It's Young Chopsy's fault. Hello, everyone. Hi. My nice. name. My sorry, say that again. <laughs> yeah, my name is. Oh my god, I don't no, want to no, no, do no, that. Sorry, I, okay, do it. God, you always do this. My name is Liz. My name is Brace Belden, aka Marshall Mathers, aka Rabbit from the movie Eight Mile, and we have, of course, here on the ones and twos, DJ Young Chomsky, real name. <laughs> Uh, at producing the episode, and we have we actually have a, a an illustrious guest for you assholes today. Wait, was his name Rabbit, or was it someone else's name that was Rabbit? I never saw it. I just watched one of the raps on YouTube one time. Uh, okay, because isn't that where the Mon Spaghetti thing's from? Yeah. Uh, yes. I watched it at work six years ago. Yeah, and I still remember. So pretty good. All right. Huh? Well, I don't remember. Sorry, about hey, that. but I did watch Richard Jewell. What? Dude, how is this not the first thing you said? We've been talking for like... Psych, bitch! <laughs> gotcha! All right, Jewel Watch. Yeah, still at zero. Still have not watched <laughs> the movie Richard Jewel. This will be a fun one. We have with us here in the studio one Jody D. You know her, you love her, and you're about to hear us fucking talk to her. Fuck. All right. What I was about to say was, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dean Zone, which is <laughs> this is the <laughs> dumbest thing I could have said. So I'm going to say, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, Liz, no, it, we are literally in the Dean Zone right now. You can't get it's. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dean Zone. We have with us today Jody Dean, who is you know her, you love her, the author of many different books, thirteen of them in fact, including Comrade and the Communist Horizon. Uh, Jody, welcome to True and On. It is a pleasure to have you here i am delighted to be here thanks so much we're so happy to have you like um i am almost a little shocked that you came on the show so i want to thank you for coming on um a lot of your recent work has been focusing on this kind of term that you use called neo-feudalism this is kind of something that brace and i have talked about kind of i mean not specifically but kind of 
generally in the past year, um, as COVID and the kind of response to COVID has, uh, I don't know, unraveled. I don't even know what to call what the past year has been. Um, we've sort of seen uh, a lot of, I don't know, a lot of talk about sort of new forms of um, intense capital exploitation emerging, monopolization, kind of what they call the K-shape recovery, the sort of like work from home and the people who don't mm -hmm. work from home. And that's sort of taking the shape of a um, what could maybe be seen as like a neo-feudal development in capitalism itself. And you've actually done a lot of work um, around this stuff. I'm wondering if you kind of explain some of what you've been seeing or some of your kind of theories around this. Yeah, so I use this term neo-feudalism to think about where we're where we are right now and where we're heading, right? What are the the tendencies of capitalism? Um, and I think this is an important thing to think about on the left because typically we think about, oh, well, as capitalism starts to destroy itself, then we get communism and everything yes. is wonderful, right? But it's not that's not what's happening. In fact, we're seeing a really a much worse kind of capitalism. And for the last thirty or forty years, uh, we've called this neoliberalism. But it seems like, it, particularly since 2008, thinking about the political and economic form that we have right now as neoliberalism, which was supposed to not involve massive state bailouts of the finance sector, it doesn't seem like it's the same. It's like it's as accurate. And now mm -hmm. um, that we've seen the massive state bailout of non-finance corporations in the name of COVID relief, it also doesn't seem all of that um, neoliberalism doesn't seem so accurate. So I think we should think about the present as kind of as having neo-feudal tendencies. And um, like the the maybe the the easiest way to think about neo feudal tendencies would be like if we've got the last fifty years of intense wage stagnation for the majority yeah. and intense concentration of wealth for the one percent. What does that lead to after fifty years? It leads to something that looks a lot like feudalism, right? With a few very very powerful billionaires and millions and millions of people in a position that's like proletarianized serfs. So it's like would be neo feudalism is the effect of what happens as capitalism consistently over time socializes risk and privatizes rewards. We get this unbelievably intense um, wealth distribution and opportunity distribution and power distribution that really looks a lot like feudalism. And so in the um, in the piece I wrote for the um, Los Angeles Review of Books, I emphasize four aspects of this neo feudalism. Um, parcelization, which is another way to talk about fragmentation, um, the kind of new lords and serfs, um, which I, I, I uh, Jaron Lanier already um, talked about this um, with respect to the tech sector, like over a decade ago, with like the lords and serfs of the internet and the way that, you know, every everyday normal people share and a few people get super rich. And then hinterlandization or just like the spread of just sort of mass areas of combinations of capital flight, but massive warehouses and call centers yeah. and just looks like crap everywhere. And then um, I, I think <laughs> the kind of more affective dimension of sort of apocalypticism and catastrophism to kind of bring in the, the element of feeling and ideology. Yeah, I, I actually had a, a question about that. So, well, not about that that final one, but about uh, about parcelization of sovereignty, sovereignty rather. Um, 
I, I, that was one I struggled with a little bit because first of all, not too familiar. I, you know, trying to figure out what partialization meant. I, you know, I figured that out after a second, but like, you know, I, I feel like a lot of stuff I read about tech coming from both the left, but mostly from the right talks a lot about sovereignty. And so what, how do you mean that in this context? Like, I know you're talking about transnational, not only corporations, but like, you know, combines of corporations and monopolies. Um, is that like where a sort of new type of sovereignty lays to you? Uh, I don't want to talk about it in terms of the new type of sovereignty, yeah. but yeah, like the yeah. breakup of sovereignty. Okay. So, um, so let's think about it like lots and lots of little courts, right? And the, this is was pretty common in Europe during the Middle Ages, which lasts hundreds of years. Um, so I can just say this and just throw it out as if this were a concrete thing to say. But but you can have a, 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 a kind of giant sort of empire which ostensibly has sovereignty, but really yeah. what's going on are little courts making their own rules. And so we see this in um, transnationally as corporations forum shop for where they're going to incorporate, their mm -hmm. forum shop for which um, kinds of adjudication measures they're going to um, be um, subject to with very, when there are complaints against them, right? They don't have to, they're not, um, they're not anchored in stone when it comes to law. So it's not like that a company um, starts out in the United States doesn't mean that all of the legal things that it comes under has to happen in the United States. Right? We see variations on this with um, the kind of pools of offshored money. Right? Yeah. That's a way of escaping kinds of jurisdiction. We can also drill way down and see this in more local levels um, with the way that um, Courts actually aren't vehicles for justice, right? Instead, these days, um, what is it? Something like you know, Matt, I don't know, over three million people now, or some have some connection with the criminal justice system in the United States, as um, they're made to have plea deals. Mm -hmm. They're made to then they get subjected to all sorts of fines, and then they're in prison for not having pled, paid the fine that they ostensibly agreed to, but they can't. Yeah, and so yeah. These kind, so you get these little courts then that have nothing to do. With, with justice that are actually squeezing people. So I think of these, these are like, like just think about like, like, like cops are really much more like low level vassals coming in to squeeze people to take what little bit of wealth they can to fund the cops. Right? So that would be the low version of this sort of fragmented sovereignty where it's nothing, it has nothing to do with, um, you know, the sort of the passage of good laws that the community has made in some democratic you know, general way. Rather, it's just the police sitting on people, um, generally working class people and people of color in order to fund themselves, namely the cops, mm -hmm. um, in all sorts of different little jurisdictions. So you've got it at a, 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 a an economic level with companies and corporations all over the world. You have it at, um, and then at, at, at much more granular local levels with the operations of small police. So again, it's not like a, a what we would think of as sort of the classic uh, mid-20th century state structure. Mm. Rather, it's all sorts of little different sovereignties that are pretty much operating on it without having to be accountable. They're not accountable yeah. at all. It's interesting. I was, um, I, I feel like this gets at something that I've been trying to wrap my head around for a long time. And Brace and I were talking about this the other day, which is like, when we talk about the U.S., like when we say like, okay, the U.S. state, like what exactly we mean almost? Because I think that what you're describing is absolutely correct, but it's very difficult to kind of, and I, I know that sounds crazy when I say, you know, say it, I, I, 
I'm not suggesting that like the U.S. doesn't exist or whatever, but just that the the organs of the the various organs of the state have become like so enmeshed, and some of their borders so porous um, as the like you know over the past I don't know like whatever 60 80 years you know like when we say we've got okay a voluntary military right and we've got you know um bases in almost every country we have an economy that is a th- like it, i mean completely and totally enmeshed inseparable from the world market um you know it's questionable like what are even our domestic productive capacity is, right? And so what you're saying about these kind of, I guess what I'm trying to get at is when we talk about these kind of transnational sovereignties, like some of that is also happening with, I mean, like with the consent, not against, not against the state, right? Like this is all kind of um, like they're in partnership together or, you know, these, these boundaries are very porous, it seems, at that level. Yeah, I think we could say that um, the U.S. state is a vehicle for this porosity, right? Mm-hmm. The United States is one of the instruments through which it happens. So, um, US, so U.S. law is a primary vehicle for, um, you know, one language would say capitalist globalization, another language would say U.S. imperialism. Right. Um, but it's a vehicle for it. So one of the, like, the sense that somehow when we have a fragmented sovereignty, we don't, so it's not, my claim is not that if there's fragmented sovereignty, there's no U.S. state. It's sure. that the state, operate, the state operates through these fragmented sovereignties. And also we've got to recognize that corporations do as well. Right and different kinds of interests, and but corporations have always acted through the state, right? They they, they use the state, yeah, yeah, of course, um, for to further their own interest. But it, but I think one of the things that I'm um, thinking about this in terms of something like neo feudalism lets us express is that it's really coercive power. It's really coercive power all the way through, mm-hmm. um, from something like a non disclosure agreement to something like a plea deal, to something like a trade policy, rather than some versions of the state as an instrument of the will of the people, which is what we were told it was, at least in grammar school, it's now totally transparent that that's not what's going on. And it's not operating in the forms that it used to. It's operating in this much more fragmentary way. So you also talk about new lords and peasants. And of course, I like to think of myself as lord of the internet. In fact, I've built my entire career off of it. But uh, but what exactly do you mean by that? Because because I, I actually was a little confused about this part in the essay. Because who precisely qualifies as a peasant here? You know, we're talking about... I, I think you mentioned like, you know, tech workers and people who work at these large tech tech firms are actually not so large when you think in terms of employees and then the people who service them. Because living in San Francisco for since I was almost the entirety of my life, I've seen that sort of like bifurcation of San Francisco workforce essentially into people who work at these tech companies and people who own these tech companies, which I sort of grouped together a lot of the time, even though obviously they make generally vastly different sums of money. And then people who, you know, work at like what I did, like work at flower shops or work at the gyms that they go to or work at, you know, uh, you know, serve them food, deliver them food, etc. And so like, what, what, what exactly do you mean by this? 
Um, I I kept wondering about the use of the word peasants. Like that may not mm-hmm. have been the best term because there's nothing really agricultural going on. Um, and what I wanted was a term that would capture sort of something like a proletarianized serf. Yeah, no, I, like- I know that's. I I didn't think you were like, oh, they're well, you know, they got their little plots of tomatoes and stuff. <laughs> you know, they go to the water mill. Um, so, but um, so we th- try to think that what we really mean is something like the sort of proletarianized serfs. What I really have in mind are is the rise of a mass, uh, the mass um, service sector economy, mm-hmm. and for a lot of folks in tech, um, particularly those at the lower end of the wage scale. They are a form of, they are a kind of service worker, right? They, for a while, they were called knowledge producers, but that that seemed like that was never really all that compelling. And for the most part, I mean, the most of the job gains in the economy that you know that tech has sort of you know lords lords over are not in the tech sector at all, right? There are things like um, home health aids, personal care aids. Mm-hmm. Um, um, aids to healthcare workers, right? So a whole stretch of, of like a, an expanded vocabulary for saying servant um, mm-hmm. is the primary place where um, there are job gains um, in the new economy. So it, it, it's more like, yeah, I, I, um, I think we, we should think of the service sector in the broadest possible way. And then start, and we do that in order to recognize the commonalities among the kinds of service work, which is actually not making something um, like manufacturing would have made, um, but it is contributing to the uh, it's contributing to the reproduction of a particular kind of class relation, which keeps these tech lords at the top. Yeah, I mean, I think you also really see that too in the like COVID recovery. I mean, I think it's yeah. made it really explicit where you see like, okay, who are the people who can work from home and who are those who have to serve those who can, right? I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think you have a, a total like a, a, an explosion in growth in a precarious underclass that's there to facilitate people's consumption or or kind of like, you know, what seems to be a, like, you know, broadening, if not kind of maybe a little uh, fragile middle class, yeah. right? What we would call in America middle class. The delivery sector, the people yeah. who, um, um, I, I don't know if the same people who deliver, say, items are the ones who stock them on the shelves, right? Is it the, like the, the kinds of, there's sorts of personal shoppers, right, who who buy the items oh, or yeah. take them off the shelf? What's oh, that? Oh, it was totally surreal. The first time I went to, the uh, first Instacart. like 10 times yeah. I went to the uh, grocery store during I know, COVID, I was the only, in one aisle, I sw- I, not, no exaggeration, the only person who wasn't shopping for somebody else in there. Everybody else was working for Instacart. I mean, that's that's pretty shocking, right? It's like, wild. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, that's, yeah, a, that's a major new development in our it's economy. Huge. Yeah, like, yeah, we yeah. don't even shop for ourselves. I mean, it's a variation, right? An extension of the personal shopper, which I always thought was like um, for super... I always associated with like super rich elite women yeah, in yes. the city. CEOs so like a, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I, had a friend, I had a friend who used to do personal shopping for somebody. Well, what's funny is they used to always work through like a department store too or something. It was like always this, like, I remember when I was a kid, you would see, they would have a department where it would be like the personal shopping department and always be in this, like one place that you would go to. And now it's like, you know, on call people, you know, all of the costs are offloaded onto the person who's Mm -hmm. doing it. 
you know, which is a whole nother thing we can get into. But it is interesting that I think that, you know, that that kind of separation or this new sort of, um, you know, bifurcated kind of like service class. I mean, you, it's, it, it is really, really explicit in the year since COVID. Um, I think to the point, I, I don't know, anyone ignoring it is just doing so on purpose, you know? And I think we see um, more occupations, that their character as, as service, um, yeah. and, as in being servants, it becomes a lot clearer. Like um, when you can't actually go to a doctor, but you go through a screen and maybe a phone call, right? What, what do they call it? Telemedicine. Telemedicine, um, Now yeah. that's sort of separating out mm. what medical work is. Um, the various kinds of, te- I mean, now teaching is much more when trying to teach online, really, mm-hmm. really difficult. Um, and that's you know, separated out to who can provide this kind of service versus, you know, the, the, you know, the old school face-to-face occupation, which had some kind of, of profession attached to it. But now the service, com- the service component is turning everyone into a servant, Mm-hmm. Um, just to maintain the lifestyle and consumption patterns, the way of life of the you know, now stronger um, upper class. Yeah, it's interesting. This also sort of, I mean, not totally, but it does kind of dovetail a little bit with like a very popular theory about elite overproduction. Do you know that theory? That like, yeah, what the, what's, I can't remember his name. No, I'm going to totally butcher this. Turchin, I guess, Peter Turchin, but um it's the idea that like um, a lot of the kind of like uh, anxiety, political anxiety that you see coming out of the middle class, that is, um, that's that's sort of, you know, I think a lot There's of There's too fucking like, many of them. Yeah, yeah. The idea is like you see it with a lot of like graduate students talk about this. I think that like you know, there's so little, there's so little jobs out there, and so many overeducated people. Um, and this produces kind of political anxieties as you know people are are um, kind of clawing at each other for more and more or fewer and fewer jobs. Really, when there's more and more of them, um, but that's sort of like kind of intersects with a little bit of what we're talking about here with this expansion of this kind of servant underclass. Um, it's one of the things that's interesting about this is that, of, of course, it predates COVID, right? Yeah, this, yeah, of course. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Um, the so-called, um, I don't know, the recovery since 2008 has been primarily with jobs in that sector, again, for... Almost all the, precarious labor. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. precarious labor. And then, if we go oh, back to your earlier comment, Bruce, I think maybe if I would say, like, the peasants would be sort of this new kind of a, a version of the precariat. But what I wanted to... The reason I wanted to call the... Um, call to talk about them as peasants is because of the way their own um, their own items, their own possessions are used for the enrichment of the lords, right? It's yeah. like, so like a peasant use has maybe some of their own land or their own tools or their own stupid cow or whatever it is to make money or not money, but to, um, to labor for the benefit of the Lord. Now the new precariat has this extra dimension of their items, right? Like their possessions, their Mm. car or their apartment, or obviously their, their phone or laptop are instruments are for their exploitation, right? Their consumer items are now instruments for their own exploitation. So there's a way that, that thinking about peasants gives you this, this tie to, 
to some sort of materiality that's a little bit different from just regular proletarianization. Yeah, I thought I thought that was that was a really interesting point because I mean you see it in sort of the advertising and you, just in the way in general that these these companies like Uber, Airbnb, etc. are talked about in the media is that in, your car is actually a way for you to make some money on the side. When in reality, it's a way for you to, to it's it's an it's an instrument of your own exploitation, right? It's a way for you to make Uber a lot of money at your side and then barely break even if you do it all. Exactly. And, oh, exactly. It's a way for you to like for Uber to make money and you actually to drive the medallion taxi drivers out of business. Exactly. Right, yeah. Right, so right, to yeah, immiserate yeah. the member, the middle class. So it's actually a form of the production of a new class relation, right? Mm -hmm. Drive out the middle wage um, taxi drivers as your own wages are going to be totally, totally collapsed and pushed down. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's, 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 I think too, like that also like dovetails into this like, and you know, I, we'll probably get onto more of this later. It, it, in that that this tool, your your telephone, your your car, is is not only an instrument of you making money, but it's like an instrument of this like kind of new sort of liberation too. Like it's this democratizing thing. You don't need you know to sign up for you know to go to a taxi thing. You know, like you can just work whenever you want. It's flexible. And that's 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 really the thing that gets me because every job I've had that says you have flexible shifts means you'll work when the fuck we want you to work. And if you want a day off, well, too bad you might have to work this day. Um, and, and that's that's sort of what drives me nuts is because I think a lot of people sort of implicitly fall for this and sort of see like I see this on the left a lot is like buy into it a little bit and be like, no, they're doing it wrong. Like we could have this, like we, I was, we, we had, we did a recently an episode on the blockchain and we, we sort of encountered this a lot when talking about that stuff. It's like, well, the way they do it is bad, but like we would do it good. And when I think there's, there's probably no way to do that good, um, you know, in, in, in a way that doesn't exploit people. Um, oh. Not under capitalism, nuts. right? Not exactly. under capitalism, absolutely, right? Flexible chains are still chains. <laughs> Just because yeah. they're made of a more malleable substance does not make them not chains. Um, and I, I mean, and, and the mistake is always like it could be better, but but not under capitalism, right? It's yeah. like as long as you're still talking about capitalism, it's still going to screw people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it almost like <laughs> it allows you to kind of sidestep the political battle that that would necessitate, right? Because if you say, oh, well, we can just keep doing this and, it, you know, at some point we'll make it better because at some point we'll be in charge. It's like, well, wait, when is that some point? Because you're completely sidestepping that in order for that to happen, you know, and by in charge, I mean, you know, by totally overthrowing and installing a radically new system of production, um, you know, that requires actual politics. Yeah, and the generation of political will and the organizing, it gets so much more complicated than, you know, than just having a good app. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I think a lot of people, um, I'm not just talking about the left, just a lot of people in general, sort of buy into this, like, promise of technology as a liberatory force. And, like, this sort of... Um, excitement about the future and about all of these things and like I, you know it i am i am famously bad at technology i actually I, I it's difficult for me to work uh anything more complicated than a text message um and most of the time i don't even respond to those but uh it, it like i i think i think that like and this is sort of what i was trying to get to earlier is that like people view like technology as like a means in itself of liberation uh, and I think that that to me it t strikes me as totally bizarre because like, you know, like you point out in this piece, 
all things seem to be leading to a place that like, yeah, maybe beyond capitalism, but like, you know, and again, like in the face of sort of any historical determinationist, not necessarily towards socialism, in fact, necessarily away from socialism and sort of a regressive and also not, I shouldn't say progressive, but like a step forward and a step back at the same time. Yeah, I think um, with with technology, I keep going back and forth trying to figure out, are, do people now, like maybe in California, do people still think of technology as like an exciting, new, great thing? Because it seems like there hasn't been any real innovations um, in the objects in a while. Maybe the blockchain stuff is the most um, new, exciting thing, but I can't yeah. imagine how anyone who's not a billionaire would care, right? So I, I think technology was a mistake on the left. Um, we think about like the, the 90s when everyone, not everyone, but when a dominant mode of the left was saying like, oh, you know, if we just had some sort of free indie media, then everything would be great. And yeah. if we just all organized ourselves with media, it would be great. But they, it's like they transferred the actual goal of political organizing into the means uh, of making media as that as if that was going to solve the problem rather than just create a really you know a, a larger media um, uh, um, environment or media um, yeah a market I mean you know if you want to create markets okay but if you actually wanted to um, stop the uh, triumph of neoliberalism and stop the um, really, um, the stop, stop the attacks on the working class that were going on. Stop the directing. Stop the economy. Um, stop the pol political culture from going in this utterly libertarian direction. Then that wouldn't have been what you do. You would actually um, think about building a socialist society. Think about the equality and not just the 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 instruments of technology. Yeah, I mean, I think too. Like, you know, I I think that. You know, you mentioned the 90s. I mean, I think that that exact thing is happening now, yeah. too. And if it's almost like, um, you know, the tragedy farce joke is always used. I don't even know if it's a farce at this point, but it's like taking that kind of um, like alt-Gen X attitude of the 90s left and that then mixing it with like social media, which is like a whole beast that's it's like almost worse. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's not even machine. farcical at that point. It's like some other kind of monster. Um, uh, I, I, you know, it's it's difficult to to know exactly what to make of it. But you've done a lot of work, kind of not mapping is the wrong word, but trying to like tease out these kind of network market structures. I mean, you you use network and not market, um, which I noticed, and I wanted to ask you about that and what you see the. But like what the difference is there, perhaps. Yeah, when I um, was working on this out, this idea of communicative capitalism, which I de um, developed, I guess, in the um, late '90s and the first decade of the 2000s, um, you know, networks were all the rage, and yeah. it, and in, in part, it, there was the material thing, like putting down the fire, the fiber optic cables, and building the infrastructure, and all of that, and and. And um, setting up the kinds of communication that were going to be different, right? There's, this is pre-social. This was before there was anything like social media, mm -hmm. um, and so that's so I use the language of networks then, because in fact the capitalist domination 
of what was going to be the internet wasn't there yet, right? That starts with the Telecommunications Act in the late yeah. 90s, um, when they, when then, um, you know, the use of the internet for, com uh, for commerce becomes um, not just guaranteed, but like really opened up and flourishing. Yeah. But, but earlier than that, you know, there was the promise of town hall for millions, <laughs> and the thought this is going to be the new democracy. And, you know, if everyone can just go online, then we'll, everything will be transparent and government will be accountable. And that's that what sounds, happened. <laughs> well, that's that's just funny because that sounds exactly and, and you know we, we made this comparison in our blockchain episode. This it's exactly how people talk about the blockchain now. This radical transparency, mm. this you know this 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 uh, new horizons for democracy, which they never, of course, explain exactly what that means. And the people building it are all total you know libertarian psychopaths. So I'm not sure we'd have the same definition to begin with. But uh, I, I mean, I, I kind of recall that stuff very vividly. How like there was this strange and. I I was pretty young at the time there was this like sort of strange like mythos around like blogs and stuff like this like we're democratizing the media go back what you said and like that will somehow solve mm. this pro problem that, and that a thousand is... mad glaciers were born exactly exactly, exactly. <laughs> um and, 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 and it, which which is totally absurd to me but i i feel like people just i mean i, I still don't know if people have necessarily totally shaken that and i can't help but think about how like occupy for instance was started by adbusters, who are, I believe, you know, public enemy number one when we're talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it, it is, it is, uh, I, I, it's like this stuff just repeats itself over and over. Well, it's interesting because you just said, Brace, when you were saying that, um, you know, this stuff repeats itself over and over again. And basically what I'm saying is, you know, you mentioned blogs. We've got podcasts now. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that um, we were going to democratize the internet. And we we're going to have all these town halls, and yet we did. We do actually kind of have that, by the way. Like we have Twitter, and we have, um, you know, all these political town halls on CNN that people participate in, and everyone can sign up for social media, and everyone can join the conversation, and it actually is. Uh, democratized in this way and yet we're still having that same conversation that's like well wait that's not what we meant when we meant this when we said this right it's like we're kind of doing the thing that we're criticizing and i i mean i'm not implicating us i'm saying like i guess what i'm suggesting is that even the way we talk about um like there isn't a better way for this stuff to be like there isn't this is what democratizing the internet looks like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I like, think that's a great that's a great point, right? Because um, what I think it points out is that it can, if you don't look at the material structure of ownership, yeah. then all of the democracy in the world is just going to reproduce new patterns of inequality and ownership. Right, it's not going to going. It's not going to get rid of the fact of inequality and in ownership. It might, and I actually think it turns to intensify it. You know, this stuff from right. um, um, Albert Laszlo Barabasi, these power laws, right, where free choice, free choice, growth, and preferential attachment always lead to higher, more and more hierarchical distributions, and the internet makes that just explode so much, right? So like, tw you know, the way that um, Twitter makes some people be totally, you know, have, you know, hundreds of millions of followers. Is it still like Katy Perry? She for the longest time, she was like the, the person with the most followers Probably. of anybody bizarrely on, on Twitter. But the way that I mean, you know, the initial promise was, you know, everyone can be influential on Twitter, yes. and everyone can have mm. this. But in fact, it produces these, you know, now we call them influencers, I guess, from yeah. Instagram and other things, but it makes these, it's not an a dramatic equalization. It's the creation of new, um, 
markets or networks with yeah. new hierarchies in them. Yeah, because this is how free markets work, right? Free, well, you right. know, this is the creation of markets. And so you have, um, you know, leaders and losers and everyone is competing, quote unquote, fairly. And, and so that's why I always find it funny when people are saying, you know, like, oh, no, but we can do this different. We just have yeah. to, you know, tweak this or that or, oh, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, this is producing this because this is what it's designed to produce. This is what it can only produce, right? Well, the way you describe it, too, is that it's almost like a pyramid scheme, right? Like the more people that join in and the more people that you got at the bottom, essentially more people who are participating in this hierarchy, which sort of feeds the people at the top. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah, mean, and I, we know that for, I mean, but that should be the, we should, it, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, but mm -hmm. it seems like it is. So mm -hmm. it's like more and more people go to um, graduate school. It's like, oh no, there's no jobs. Well, there's no jobs because there's more and more people <laughs> who are competing for them. Or, um, you know, we've got millions and millions of people on Twitter. Well, of course we're going to have a power law distribution because you can't read millions of other people's <laughs> tweets, right? You're only going to be ever able to read a subset. Thank um, God. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it would, it would be even worse. And, and as long as the basic structure of ownership underneath isn't grappled with, then we're just going to keep going around these these circles. I, I like um, I like what Liz says earlier about like sort of the permanence of farce, right? Is we don't even get tragedy anymore. It's just yeah. like the perpetual living of the farce. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do think it, that maybe one of the reasons why we act so surprised is that it implicates so many of us. I mean, you know, oh, it's like I've got 100,000 or whatever it is, something stupid followers on Twitter, and we are on a podcast right now. Like, we're very heavily implicated in this conversation. Um, this, is, and I mean, I, this is something that drives me insane all the time. Like, if I, yeah, I, I think about it a lot. Yeah, I just think that like, you know, you mentioned the grad school thing. I mean, I think that a lot of these kind of um, these conversations about these the, the like market incentives and the kind of social relations that are produced out of, you know, the, the kind of like these networks or these markets, these, you know, communication markets, however we want to describe social media. Um, and it's kind of like whatever ensuing detritus but like you know, there's a there's a drive to deny that they mm. actually are markets, even as like as we're participating in them, because I think the fear is that with them we're implicated, and there's uh, like some sort of there, there's some sort of like dissociation that, or like that that causes a kind of like disruption of the self. Maybe I don't know. I think that like people have a really hard time confronting how yeah. kind of enmeshed we all are in these networks um, because it feels like maybe we should be able to step outside of them or 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 something. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm getting too psychological here. No, I, I think that the the symptom of what you're describing is people's constant like trashing of one another, cancel culture, and mm -hmm. then the you know, then this the the kind of sense the, the guilt that comes from being mm. involved in all of this but what yes. that, that but because all of that stuff we actually also know that that's just unbearable and sort of trivial um it's a displacement from the actual material conditions yeah, that these uh, communicate the, the networks of communicative capitalism 
our sites for our displaced class struggle. Like we're actually not fighting the class struggle. Absolutely. In on Twitter, right? We need to fight. We if we were going to fight it on Twitter, we would be, you know, what's his name? Jack Dorsey is that his name? Um, mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah, we would yeah, be yeah, like like seizing sage. his stuff and um, mm. you know blowing up the server farms or organizing those. I workers. like where you're going with you this. All right. <laughs> oh, and, and all power to the Amazon workers. I guess we know this are uh, the ones in Bessemer, Alabama today. Of course. Who yeah, are yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Voting. The vote's supposed to be, I guess, counted by the end of the day. So, um, in line of the discussion we've been having, we can um, hope that there's going to be not a farce, but yeah. or a tragedy, but a wonderful victory for the people. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. Like, like Liz, you're saying, like it, it's sort of people don't like to examine it, and like I was saying, it drives me insane if you think about it. But like, I think that's that's a a. It does. I can't use the word dovetails twice in a fucking episode, but I can't think of another word. So let's say it fishtails. It all tails are the fucking same. All those two tail things are the same. It goes together. Oh wait, no, it's interdigital. Check that one out. That's a, that. All right, yeah, that's a grad student word. That sounds wrong. It's true. It's when you go like this. That's when you put your hands together. Um, lock fingers. Anyways, what I'm saying is. Is that and and again like you know I I have I have basically only been involved in like organized left wing politics since the beginning of the 2010s um, and you know besides some scattered stuff in my youth and w what I see and like again this implicates us this implicates me and this implicates more people not just that just do podcasts or anything but it's like I see it as like a series of almost and this is uh, it's on Twitter especially of like competing or maybe interlocking fandoms and like you know followings rather than like it. It's like it's not even is to turn away from the party form or it's it's even almost a turn away from movementism like in, in in that sense where it's actually just following personalities who may not have like necessarily the most together politics or anything or, or even like us or you know it's like I, I don't think that there's any people who base their politics off our show God I hope not but like you know it's it, it, it it's 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 almost like it fits perfectly with the rest of the way society is going, right? Like it fits right alongside the people shopping for you at Whole Foods and the people delivering the food and all that kind of stuff is this turn away from like any actual effective means of politics into essentially just like, you know, it's like the kiss army, but for like uh, guys with beards and glasses. I didn't think there was um, something kind of worse on the left than movementism but i think yeah. competing fandoms <laughs> is i think you've totally named that and it i think it fits really well with neo-feudalism because fandoms are about loyalty prestige exactly. status right all of this this sort of the pageantry of did you insult my lord or something yeah. like this rather mm. than actual an actual right, fight right. over terrain i mean it's and then the like, fight over mental terrain right communicative yeah. terrain and then everyone kind of fighting each other for the right to defend the Lord. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because you've got these sort of petty hierarchies that then emerge. I mean, the social relations are just completely bizarre. And I think like, um, you know, kind of going along with what Brace said too, it's like in its, in its other turn away from something that has any kind of relation to anything political is that, um, there is a kind of complete and total rejection of any kind of self-criticism. Yeah. Like, at least that's what I've noticed as like a larger culture. Like, I, I, it's funny, like, because when, I mean, we've talked about this on the show a lot, but when the Bernie collapse happened, like, I didn't really, you know, I had some ideas, but I didn't really know what to make of it. And I had, 
it really just like, I just wanted to like sit and think for a long time, right? Because it was like, okay, this is like a huge failure. It felt like, like this was supposed to, um, a lot of people, you know, it had a kind of a running start. It had a lot of years, you know, in the making in terms of like his popularity within the democratic party and whatever, whatever. Um, and, you know, socialism on the march and all this shit from the last like five years that was in the kind of popular culture. And and it totally just like boom was com extinguished just like almost immediately, right? And and very very quickly and easily. Um, and, and so I was like, well, that seems like this seems like a moment. I mean, not to like give some like Maoist cards away, but it, like this seems like a moment for everyone to kind of mm -hmm. sit around and like fucking think about what just happened <laughs> and try to like you know examine like what went wrong, like what went wrong. And instead, you see an immediate like doubling down, like, oh, we already know what happened, or, or my favorite move, which is, oh, well, I didn't think it was actually going to happen anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is like the other thing, and it's, it's just completely bizarre. And I see the kind of like um, social forces that reinforce uh, that this kind of like, yeah, uh, there's a zero openness to thinking um, critically or analyzing or implicating oneself in some of that. And I think it has to do with something you've talked about, which is the kind of subjects that emerge out of these networks where their identities are completely tied to these network social relations and how destructive that can be, um, particularly when it starts getting enmeshed with what gets either um, mistaken for or, you know, in some ways uh, displaces like the political yeah, it's um, the defeat of Bernie should have been a good a time for a good struggle session. Yeah, and yeah, with totally. all of this, and we have all of this media that was supposed to be um, openings for, like we were talking about democracy, but we could say openings for you know better reflection or a conversation. But it's been the opposite, and I think it, the it's the opposite, um, or it's been the opposite um, because uh, there's so much, right? Like yeah. you're, the, it ha we're subjected to these essentially market laws online, right? Yeah, to get, absolutely. You, you got to get the shares, you got to get the hits, and that means you got to have the hot take. Because um, right, right, there's right. all with with millions or billions of people participating, there's always going to be something new just by the you know the, the different addition in. And so if you're going to have any kind of um, even a, 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 a second of possibility of people reading what you have, it's got to be hot and it's got to be quick. Yeah. And that's not you know that's not long form thinking. Um, and then if you say something like I guess I was wrong, then it's like oh god, you know either they ignore you because who cares, or then you get trashed as just having been horribly horribly wrong. Um, and like there's no it, it, the the affective structure of these networks is just one that's completely makes reflection impossible because it's, because the networks themselves become reflexive. Like you say this, and I'm going to say this plus one, right, and right, you're going right. to say this plus one plus one, and it always keeps accelerating rather than letting you have a little bit of time and space for actual reflection. Right? It's like it's built it's built into the system that we can't have that. Like, exactly. That's, that's what it is. And I think like, this is what mistake. democracy looks like. Yes, I think that's what. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's what people mistake for being um, like that intense polarization that's created, like is actually um, uh, like uh, you know, confusingly is actually very um, like stable for the market, right? The, the 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 instability is actually very stable, and actually these kind of, the the kind of market logic demands a kind of. Um, unstable stability right not to get too like 
cheesy or whatever. But so I think people like, you know, think that, oh, this is disrupting, this is doing all this, yeah, this is yeah. doing that. This is kind of like, um, these are ruptures. Oh, is that a rupture? Is this a ru That's my favorite game when the left plays. Is this a rupture? <laughs> Just pointing at the news or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 you know, so it's easy to 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 feel like these kind of like you know the the extreme volatility in markets is somehow um, makes them more and more precarious. When in fact that actually it is precarious, but also strong at the same time. If that yeah, makes sense. I think that's absolutely right. We we know that capitalism relies um, always has churn and crises, right? Mm -hmm. Capitalism is always Requires, throwing yeah. off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's necessary. Throws off people. This is totally necessary. So why would we expect our communication markets or networks to be any different? No, they're going to rely on these boom, bust, crises, throwing off people, bringing up new ones. And that's, that's the form of stability, like you were saying. I think that that's exactly right. And that also then tells us why this, um, the... Um, you know, the, the revolution is not going to be tweeted, right? It's not going to come through these forms of um, of media, even if the forms of media are are helpful and useful. I will say, like one of the things. So, in the in the interest of self criticism, um, in like in the first, you know, uh, I don't know, decade of my thinking of communicative capitalism, I was really like just only completely trashing it um, all social media and mm. forms of networked communications just as as prime as only forms of capitalist co-optation yeah. i think it's true they are forms of capitalist co-optation co but i was insufficiently dialectical and i was insufficiently dialectical to the extent that um, one of the things that's been cool over the last say 10 years or so is the creation of left media and so not trying to be a media for everyone, not trying to replace big mass media, but actually media that um, does try to build a left and does try to let there be an actual left discussion and a left debate, which is why we can even say it's frustrating that there's not a time of reflection. Like we, if, if we only had like CBS, NBC and ABC, we wouldn't have said, oh, it's a shame they were not reflecting on the loss of a socialist candidate because that would never have happened. But yeah, we can, I can understand our left media and wondering like how do we have a space within that general ecosphere now we haven't been able to do that very effectively yet but maybe it's possible so i think that um that all of the capitalist stuff is is true and awful and yet maybe there are points of of, of forms of of convergence that we wouldn't that we didn't have say 10 years ago, forms of building um, socialist consciousness, building left consciousness that we didn't have before, or we only had in local areas in in face-to-face -face, uh, face -face interactions or with a few of the paper magazines that were still available. But but those don't, you know, are, don't have the capacity to bring as many young people in as, say, like, the, the kinds of media we have now. So um, I... I, I I think we should keep the, the being really critical, but there's also there is a, a an element of hope that we also need, you know, essentially that we need for the revolution. Because if we don't think, if we only live in farce land, um, we don't have the space for building the other thing. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I that 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 actually does make a lot of sense to me. But I think Jody, what my kind of worry is is that if people people become more and more enmeshed in these networks, um, and I, and I see this just happen particularly like with our show or with you know with, with left media in general, is that these networks sort of become it for them. Like there is nothing outside of there. I mean that that's sort of the you know there's kind of the trope about the Twitter communists, which is you know. 
fairly real. You know, somebody who's sort of maybe like a little socially stunted, spends much of their time online, is sort of agoraphobic in a way and like doesn't really go outside uh, or interact with the wider world much. And I think that's actually like... And that's sort of what drives me insane because as more and more people are driven you know, online, not, you know, COVID absolutely 100%, you know, put the pedal to the metal, like, you know, took this, accelerated this forward. But like more people were spending like a lot of their time online. And now it's like some people are just spending a lot of all of their time online. I think it creates like a stunted political being. And like, that's sort of what worries me is that like, it, it, without interacting with like, you know, people face to face and without having like, you know, sort of the joy of, of comradeship or, or, you know, or even just friendship in general. I, I mean, I, I, it, it, it makes for a, um, a sort of like schizophrenic political environment, um, that, that's sort of like uh, bounces from, from, from here to there. Uh, and, and that's like, I mean, we see that sort of reflected in the, I guess you would say mainstream, but also on the left too, with a lot of these like Instagram infographics and like what you can do to like be a better person and stuff like that. So we have like on, on one hand, sort of this like network that relies on people being inside and this sort of like antisocial social ability, but then also this like extreme sort of like zealot like uh you know thrust towards self-actualization and like uh you know the you know disclaiming your sins and get you know getting getting this internalized whatever and you know etc out of you um and, and it creates i think like a schizophrenic being right because you're just like i am inside all the time and i'm all fucked up because you know oh my god like i read on instagram i'm like i'm a racist like holy shit and, uh, it, you know, I think it just drives people totally mad. I mean, that's what I freak out about because it's like, I mean, I've been to political meetings before where I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, it's like these people learn how to communicate on Twitter or something. It's all invectives or these, you know, these buzzwords or something like that. And it, you know, it freaks me the fuck out. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I think that's right. I mean, I, you can't be, um, comrades are not people who are born and made online, right? Comrades, yeah. um, comradeship requires um, a face-to-face dimension, a sense that, uh, essentially a sense that you know the person's got your back, right? That yeah. you're in a struggle where you can rely on the other person. And the thing about, um, I'd say all or nearly all of our um, interactions in sites like Twitter is you can never rely on anybody to have your back, right? No. You really have no idea. People could turn, you know, turn on a dime. And, you don't even know who they are most of the time. And, um, and then they, they're trashing you for absolutely no reason, yeah. just for, just because it's fun or because you opened yourself up for a, a quick rejoinder. Yeah. Um, so I... Um, I think you're uh, you're right we, about the um, the problems of a, of a totally online left, and so it means that okay, so when we have left media, people still have to go outside and <laughs> interact with actual people and do something, not just talk on media, right? Not just. Um, in, in fact, I think it's the the just being there, which is why folks re- resort to these moralisms of, you know, ha- like, do these four things to be a good person, or if you had yeah. these four thoughts last week, then you're bad. Um, that it's because people are, it's it's when people are not involved in actual struggles on the ground, that that becomes the place where they feel like they can do something. It's like, well, you know, I'm not out there, I don't know, re- repairing bikes or restoring headlights in a, a mutual aid network, but at least I circulated this on Instagram that will help people be better people. I mean, but but they, the, the understanding is super individualized and super moralistic, 
rather than an understanding that's anchored in sort of organizing for struggle, organizing for power. So they sort of go hand in hand. Or what did, what did you call it? Um, Interdigital. Inter yeah, my PhD word. I'm doing my dissertation on, on that word. <laughs> In that neo-feudal essay, you wrote that capital accumulation occurs less than uh, less through commodity production and wage labor than through services, rents, licenses, yeah. fees, work done for free, often under the masquerade of participation, and data treated as a natural resource. And I think that, like, I can already hear people criticizing what we've been saying on this episode because they're saying, why are you guys focusing on Twitter so much or this is just about media or whatever. And I guess what I'm trying to maybe to bring it to kind of like connect these things together a little bit is that these markets emerging or networks, however we want to call them, emerging actually have a lot to do with um, kind of new modes of capital accumulation. And that like, Therefore, what happens on these networks does have like very political content out of the social relations that emerge, right? And that like, so if we think of, I mean, we've talked about this on the show too, like with data um, as a kind of, like, it's hard. I don't totally know how the best way to kind of think of big data. And a lot of people yeah. have written a lot over the you know past couple of years about this. You've written a lot um, about kind of, uh, capital's relation to data and these platforms and how they're using it. And it's hard for me, like, to kind of grasp how much of this is kind of like um, the, like, frothy speculative stuff that's fun for capitalists, you know what I mean? And how much of this NFTs. is actually, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, even though that to me is just like weird libertarian democratization of patents. Still frothy. Which is very interesting. But, um and how much of this actually shows a kind of shift in production and perhaps a shift in value even? Um, a couple of things um, come to mind. Um, one thing is really thinking about intellectual intellectual property. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it seems to me that, that it's less the actual data of big data than it is the um, intellectual property over the, let's just, I don't know a better, better word, than the algorithms that mm. do something with it. Yeah. And so it's really like there's all of this resource out there, but where the money is going to come from or the perspective money is figuring out cool ways to do something with it. And those that come don't even have to come from actual making products, but from you know patentable sort yeah. of ideas or algorithms, I think that I think the key is um, intellectual property, um, and then that is a strange kind of asset that's not a material asset that is part of a that essentially it's a rent seeking right right like, right yeah right. yeah yeah it's, yeah, it's a rentier yeah. capitalism, and rather than um, in old school industrial commodity production, it's 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 you make money from the rents, and that in fact you know you guys I'm sure already probably have talked about this a bunch of times. Um, um, more um, rents are the primary way now in the United States rather than goods. That, yes. um, it's the primary form of accumulation now, right. of capital accumulation now. So I think that, um, so there is that um, connection with the big data stuff. So it's more like, it's, it's, it's like the reflective um, mm -hmm. or extra dimension. Well, I think what's interesting is that now, like, I'm, and you know, again, like, I mean, this sounds crazy. Like, I don't know, it sounds a little like out there, like, stuff kind of stuff that I don't particularly like to indulge too much in but I do think about this a lot like 
So much profit is now realized out of activity that's not considered labor. And this is mm-hmm. something that really trips me up, I think. Um, and I guess why, yeah, I, I, I think that talking about these kind of networks and these sort of relations is really important. But like, for example, like when you go home and you turn on Netflix, like you're not working and yet someone is making money off of you. Right. And so there's this sort of like new, I mean, you know, it is rent sinking, absolutely, but it's this new kind of relation that's merging. And I guess what I'm like curious about is how much of this is like, you know, as we talk about these sort of like new neo feudal forms, like what is this a new, is this a transformation in uh, capitalist accumulation itself? Or is this some sort of like, speculative bubble i guess and i and maybe no one knows you know i don't know you get you get the kind of benefit of um you know looking back on this in the future and, and seeing the way that um this all kind of develops but it's difficult when i guess kind of like tying this all back in together everything we've been talking about like you have a kind of these this this sort of um overproduced or i don't even really like that story but you have this very like broad uh, middle class, that is this not totally, um, not, I mean, it's petite bourge, not totally, I mean, you know, in America, it's the middle class, it's, it's always kind of occupied this kind of nebulous space, right? But um, that is serviced by this underclass, but that also produces, um, like, uh, value out of like data that it, it that it you know, allows to be extracted for yeah. these platforms. Like, I guess I'm trying to tie all of this together and kind of what this new ecosystem is and then trying to then understand the, the past, like, as we've kind of been witnessing this transformation, I'm not making a lot of sense, I apologize, but as we've been watching this kind of, the beginnings of what possibly is this transformation in the West, then what that then maybe explains about the politics that we've witnessed and are yeah. continuing to witness that are emerging. Because I, I think that that tells us more about the kind of uh, various upheavals over the last decade than maybe some of the other stories we tell ourselves. Um, so if we, we recognize that for Marx, value is always exchange value, right? So value is always this relational quality. Yeah. Um, which then means that value is really just this um, overhang or crust over social relations. <laughs> that um, So I think one of the ways to think about the sort of value question uh, with respect to big data and communicative capitalism is there is a way that um, this um, the, the big data world tries to seize the social substance directly and avoid the commodity form or even maybe avoid the value form. And so that value becomes displaced instead yeah. of this grasping up the, you know, taking of the social substance. So that's why, like, all of our interactions leave trails of metadata that can be scraped. Mm-hmm. The interactions remain somewhere yeah, <laughs> that can be yeah, scraped. Yeah. Like, we, we walk we walk in through a city and all the different cameras and things, like, tra- um, take our traces so there's a way that the social sub that big data is about the and the internet of things together are mm-hmm. about the taking of the social substance without the value form. Now, if that's if that 
first part of a hypothesis is right, then it would start to let us see why there's been a problem in the translation of all of the big data stuff into value, right? Instead, right, right, we have, right. as like you were talking about, this, the froth and the speculation. You have this massive amount of froth and speculation, but we don't know what it's making. We do know, yeah. like, the, 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 the doggone buzzword of disruption that's real. I mean, Uber is horrible that they did disrupt the um tra- the um, taxi services right they've really they've done dis- they've disrupted urban tra- forms of transportation that were there they've disrupted the lives of, of you know mm-hmm. millions of people Airbnb has a disruptive oh, effect yeah. and um, at least with Uber it doesn't seem like it's producing value it's sucking up value yeah, yeah. and and so I think I think that maybe the combinations of like speculation and froth and the dissolution of value like they're going to be a mess for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because maybe- that's what I've always understood is that a lot of that data that's collected. I mean, for all of the sort of uh, the 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 myth around it and sort of the the um, almost like yeah magical quality it has for people is like pure gold. Yeah, a lot of it's bullshit. Like it's not worth anything. It doesn't mean anything. You can't glean anything useful from it, or if you can glean anything at all. Oh yeah, there was some study. I don't. I don't remember any of the details, but it involved like generals and wars or something, yeah. and big data. And it was like the big data did nothing, right? Like it yeah. had no predictive capacity at all. It was just like like any any study that has said something about big data has always been retroactive. Like oh, after after this happened, we saw that all the data was there, <laughs> but it, 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 it's had like really really minimal um, predictive capacity. Uh, you know, a really small degree of predictive capacity. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like its only use is creating cottage industries for like a bunch of people to throw money at and then see kind of what sticks, you know? Um, that's always been my my feeling about the digital education stuff. Whereas it's like, I, I mean, I don't think anyone likes it. I don't think the kids like it. I don't think the teachers like it. And the, but I don't think the parents like it. And yet they'll just continue throwing money at it no matter what because surely this this ha- there has to be a reason that we could do this like if we have the technology then we exactly. can do it and therefore it must be the jetsons did it from home but i don't think it'll ever catch on because i don't think anyone actually really likes it i mean i think a lot of people will make money it'll be like a jobs programs for a lot of like you know sociology majors probably <laughs> but like you know what i mean like teacher this. america types yeah. What was it was it like more than was it ten years ago? I don't know. Um, what do they call the MOOCs? Massive online, blah 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 classes or something. And there mm. were two or three of these big, big companies that were trying to. It was called MOOCs. So, I don't know. I can't remember the name. I think it was like MOOCs. It was, I think it was oh, like incredible. MOOC or something like that. And and a few um, universities thought that this was the way they were going to like get rid of problems problems uh, that they thought they saw like too many students in freshman composition, yeah, right? yeah. which means how we don't have to teach people to read and write anymore. And so they were going to use these big massive. Um, class is a way to, you know, underpay, uh, continue right. to underpay adjunct labor. Um, and it was basically a failure because nobody likes this. And nobody. it seems, nobody, it's awful. And it seems like, um, you know, the, with the COVIDs, the goal is going to be to try to bring it back and make mm-hmm. it stick. I'm, I actually think it won't. I think, in fact, yeah, we, think this might won't. be one good thing is that people realize um, learning happens better face to face. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Um, that students at every level prefer to interact with people. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree. And I also think, yeah, I just think that uh, people, I mean, you know, even myself, this is something I struggle with. I mean, we discount how much, um, like, just people, like, rejecting something will actually work. (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, um, that's why I have such a hard time talking about these new technologies and these new kind of modes of, of production and, 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 um, and, and all of it and like what comes out of it, because I, it's so difficult to see like, yeah, what's real, what's not, I guess. Which is a terrible way of putting it when you're talking about digital things. <laughs> it makes me want to go back to the part about the services, right? Mm -hmm. And why there's been this increase in jobs and services. In part, it's because those are places in the economy that can't easily be automated. Yeah. Right? So, and so that's a place where there can be, um, you know, the, it's it, the uh, labor costs are relatively low because they can't be because the um, people um, don't have to have a whole, um, high degrees of expertise to let's say be personal home health aides, yeah. and then that means that the cost of entry for a capitalist is relatively low, and automation is not going to be a source of sort of co of sort of intensification of that market. So those are going to be where the um, where the jobs are going to be. And um, that's the, the kind of employee or, or worker underside to all of the froth and overaccumulation um, at the top. But, but this, these um, frothy um, Silicon Valley, um, you know, speculative data things, like they don't create the jobs. Yeah. Um, that's not going to be a site. Like, and, and then we can go back, like, they're not really value producing um, areas. There are more sites for um, getting wealth in other ways, like seizing wealth through investment wealth, creating an international prop uh, um, intellectual property, but not um, forms of, 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 um, of investment that actually produce um, that actually lead to value product value producing labor at all. So, like what you're saying is like a lot of these tech companies, they might you know provide uh, ostensibly some people with some jobs, but they don't make any money off of that. They make money off of like the intellectual property and investment and all that kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. Which is a totally. I mean, that's the thing. Is like. I, you know, growing up, I was taught about like the rational, like how the market sort of like is rational, you know, of course, the, the invisible hand of the free market, all that kind of stuff. And, and democracy, too, is like, you know, self-correcting and rational. And it's like how anybody could could make it to 2021 and, and believe any of that even a little bit to me is totally absurd. But like, you know, it's it, it's it, this engine seems like it's just going to keep fucking going. Right. Like with COVID, especially so much of this has snowballed and, and gotten bigger and larger. And I, and I like, you know, like, I, I do agree. Liz, I think people will reject stuff like the online educations. I mean, it's it is people I know on every single side of that: parents, kids, and teachers. Fucking think, despise it. Yeah, middle class parents are pretty powerful. I guess is what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, never. Yeah. Well, because you know now they can't fucking uh, you know get waste of the country club or anything. I mean, they got They got to take care of the watch the yeah, they kid. gotta wait till they can get their vaccines exactly um but uh but it, that that's that's sort of drives me insane is like it seems like this stuff is just like accelerating i mean you know not to not to i'm not making any illusions with that i mean it really is just like you know it's it's get it's getting bigger and faster um and it seems like there's no like real counterforce, right? Like people sort of just accept it and like, well, yeah, I drive Uber after, you know, I get off work sometimes and then, you know, work just becomes Uber and stuff like that. And like, I, you know, it's, 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 I, I find myself sort of just waiting for like, you know, you talk about hinterlandization uh, in the, uh, in, 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 in the essay and like, you know, it's almost in a way it happens in the cities. Like I'm in LA right now and I walk outside, I've talked about this on a million fucking episodes. So if you're sick of hearing it about it, you know, 
I don't give a fuck. Uh, but you know, I walk outside <laughs> and there's basically favelas everywhere. You know, like, I mean, it yeah, really has to be seen to be believed. Too. Yeah, exactly. San Francisco. Like, I mean, there are like, you can't even call them tent cities because, you know, people build houses and stuff like that. I mean, I think if building codes were like 5% looser, we would have something resembling favelas all over the place. I mean, there was just a big battle at a, at a park down here when they tried to clear out this giant encampment. And like, you know, that stuff, it's like, it's like there's... You know, yeah, we have this sort of like wasteland outside the major cities. You know, you know, anyone who's drive through like Mississippi, for instance, will will probably know what I mean. But like in the cities too, there are like enclaves of hinterland where there is like absolutely like nothing for anybody, just like you know, dirt and trash, and you know, people who are sick or people who just like. I mean, I had I, I've had coworkers who lived in their cars. I had a coworker who used to sleep in the fucking dumpster, which he actually didn't need to do, but. He was, you know, it's kind of out there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's it seems like there'll be like sort of this like centralization of these like glittering populaces, and then there's yeah, there's just like sort of mass um, massive space, maybe not even filled with that many people, of just like desolation. Um, and that that really, I mean, well, as Mao said, the countryside surrounds the city. So I, that's that's what I always get thinking of. It's like, well. It, that's my sort of trick for the future is like, well, we just need to make most of America into a third world country. And <laughs> then, of course, you can do Maoism, too, and take the cities. The problem is, is that we need uh, Maoists to account for the suburbs. Because the problem we're having now is that everyone is fleeing the, c- the city for the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's been a very interesting. I wanted to ask you about this, actually, development since covid um, and I think since you've been writing about this neo-feudalization and kind of these makeup of these cities, because at least in San Francisco, and I think the truth, this is happening also in New York and a couple other cities, but like the amount of people that have fled and, and you know, and, and a ton of businesses that are just not coming back, a ton of, uh, you know, offices that are then related to those businesses and then like lunch places that are related to those business, you know, and the, the entire little micro economies that these things create, like are just it's not those like tech that tech utopia city anymore like no one wants to live in San Francisco and actually the housing prices are going through the roof in like the out in you know the suburbs outside of it which is really fascinating and so now you have i mean like what Brace is saying about what's left of these cities is I mean, it's it's pretty shocking how quickly this has all happened, you know? Um, just total desolation in a lot of what used to be some of the richest places in, in the world. It's going to be interesting to see if if that keeps going after yeah. after COVID, yeah. because it could also be the case that um, this is, I mean, again, now thinking within market, like within market yeah, yeah, terms yeah. rather than... Um, proper terms. Um, it could really be the case that um, the prices within the cities go down and then um, younger people move back and then the the small business owners come back as well. And because there's still very low interest rates, everybody gets a loan and you have a nice little momentary capitalist utopia. I think I think that the, the attraction of cities may not go away that quickly. Mm. Um, that cities, um, you know, pr- particularly for um, for younger people, um, you know, people who are like 
you know, right out of school, like they want to be around other people. They don't want to yeah. live out in the middle of nowhere and have to drive a stupid car, um, and you know, be stuck at home with the same people. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm not, I'm not convinced it's going to stay this way. Um, I, th- I think re- this could be a, a good thing for cities. Now, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm a terrible predictor. I mean, I like really, really bad. I, I hate I promised- predictions. I'm, I know, I'm great at predictions. I promised my daughter the day before the 2016 election that Trump would not win. I'm like, I promise. I'm a political scientist. He will not win. <laughs> well. Oh, man. Wow. Well, at least, hey, that's self-criticism, right? <laughs> yeah, there we go. I do think, though, like, speaking of young people, and this, look, check out this fucking segue, guys. Speaking of young people, what do you make of, like, the attraction that a lot of people have now to these sort of, like, I would call it like a return to utopian socialism, almost like the fully automated luxury communism. I mean, that was such a crazy, and I by crazy I mean mentally fucked. Um, it's still uh, here. Yeah, it's still. Oh, it's it's. Diffused. I wouldn't pass tense it. Just no, no, yet. no. no. <laughs> so here, I would say like a lot of the like more out there trends in the past, like you know whatever decade, it 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 maybe it had its like brief you know flare up and you know moment in the sun, and then it diffused and sort of like became part of like the. Uh, mm. I don't really know. Know what body politic mean but i'm just gonna say it part of the body politics uh, people got into it without necessarily With knowing their bodies their the idea their body you know they felt the beat of the fully automated luxury communism but like a post-work stuff or a lot of like the really outray like anarchisms and stuff like that that like didn't revolve around like you know what i have traditionally thought of as socialism which is a you know a a party uh you know led by and for the working class that institutes a dictatorship of the proletariat you know advancing towards communism pretty fucking pretty fucking simple but like you know i mean now it's like i see it's like with the with the flowering of technology you know um Liz, I think you said let a thousand Mataglacius bloom, but this is let a thousand, you know, and I speak as a florist, a guy who hates flowers, let a thousand flowers bloom and people coming up with all of these sort of like new utopian visions and some of them which which kind of caught on and some of them which have caught on in a way that like people who even would, would think of themselves as having more like... I hate to say this, but like traditional socialist politics have actually accepted some of these things and it has warped their politics slightly. And like it, 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 what do you make of this? Like this, this, this like antipathy or even actually like hatred towards work by people who are like essentially socialists, where it's like who, I, instead of talking to some of these people, I'm like, you seem like you would rather die than fucking work at Walmart. You know, yeah. it, it blows my mind. I think the on the the fully utopian luxury communism I think is um, part of a you got to get a technological fix you mm-hmm. can quickly there can be like we can just automate our way out of class struggle it's a denial yeah, right. of class struggle it's a denial of the working class a person would actually rather have an app than talk to a worker it's not not even imagine they, they can't imagine themselves as a worker but they can't even imagine interacting with workers it's like work does not appear and that's the same thing with the post work imaginary it's part of an erasure of work um, and an erasure of workers and the working class and that's why one of the, the reasons I think that stuff is super dangerous for any kind of actual socialized movement um, it it's like fantasy world that looks for a technological fix does not um, does not think about get involved with organizing um, or or really actually engage in um, you know in proper work and by any stretch of the imagination it's it's I actually think it's damaging yeah I think um, so too I mean the one good thing you know gets the word out there but then people are like oh you know all we need it's like a, a unicorn or something with a rainbow coming out of yeah. its butt or something is usually the the um, picture of it no that's um, that's it's a like, that's a yeah. bad call 
one word or like one weird trick technocracy that's all i think of it as to be honest i mean it feeds the same impulse it's like why you see all these same people talking about like oh the only thing we need to do is just get rid of the supreme court and then oop, no more politics because once we get rid of the supreme court we can do whatever we want and it's like there's just like so much going on when people say shit like that it's like one why is everyone a schmidian now that's a little dangerous oh. and scary and strange <laughs> two like you can't just erase, first of all, you, you've you completely erased politics from just getting rid of the Supreme Court. Like, what are you even talking about? What does that mean? Um, you know, I'm using that as a, for, for instance, you know, people have all these other kind of um, legislative, like, bugaboos. They always talk about the filibuster, all this, this kind of, like, shit as being the impediments for achieving whatever you know it's become what they say is socialism but really i don't know what they mean it's usually just a bunch of um, issue politics that they want to yeah. pass you know it's like it's like one trick ponies right it's like oh if we can just if we just get rid of the filibuster if we just get rid of the supreme court right then we all the problems are solved really really quickly with just right. one fell swoop again without doing class-based organizing it's like we can let a, you know the people in congress and you lobby your congressman so it's really the imaginary is a liberal yes. even as it wants to change um, part of the, you know, the, of the structure of the current state it wants to change part of the structure without looking at the basis, which would have to be a change in um, property relations. Right. Oh, and, and one more thing I wanted to add about the doggone um, uh, luxury automated communist um, is I think that they, in their fantasy around technology and automation, they totally obliterate um, care work and service work, which is actually yeah, where yeah. most mm. of the, we've been talking about this the whole time, but where the new jobs are, you're new, I mean, like the most of the job growth is, where there's actually a social crisis, right? The crisis, a crisis around social reproduction, a crisis around these kinds of care, because they're underfunded, um, you know, they're, the, the wages are low, families um, are desperate, and yet that kind of work is totally invisible in an automated luxury communism. I mean, like the people who provide the luxuries, the pre the people who are building the automation stuff, all of that is just a race. And I think I think there's something sort of symptomatic about the the real turn away from the the fact of of, of working class life and what it looks like in the United States and and England because the, the, some of this stuff is coming out of England. And right now, it's like a turn away from from um, the stuff on the ground, actually. Yeah, it's always been confusing too. I always assumed that they I was like, Oh, where's your stuff getting made? And I just assumed they were they meant the third world. But Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean it I just asked for whenever Westerners talk about shit like that, I just assume that that's the that's what goes unnamed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean it's um yeah, that kind of utopianism. I I'm not sure some people say that it's that it has um like some use because it gets people's imagination. But I, I actually disagree, and I, I, you know, I agree with you that I think it's quite damaging um, because it imagines that the kind of work of building society is not like a collective project, <laughs> but that can just be kind of, um, you know, automated away, like we say. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think the the challenge right now is, I mean, yeah, we do need to do some imagination work. Um, but maybe the bigger work is generating political will. 
and that the political will has to be to organize a working class and, in fact, have a working class party that um, seizes the means of production. And the, um, the problem with some, some of the versions of imagination, like we imagine this experience, is never goes all the way to actually thinking about the organizing, right? It's just like, it's like scenarios. There's um, a lot of stuff in um, climate writing and writing about mm. climate change and, and responses to climate change that unfolds as like, as, as just scenarios, like, well, this could happen, or this connect could happen, but it's they're not, they don't tend to be connected into accounts of people organizing accounts of trajectories. It's more like, well, let's have an electrical grid everywhere, or let's abolish this, not like, how do you build the kinds of political power necessary to accomplish these things. And so that's one of my problems with some of these utopian experiments, are utopian open imagination experiments is the actual work of generating the political will to do anything is is completely effaced it's like it's like pushed aside absolutely this is so fun i know this is a blast i've um, enjoyed it i feel like you guys do a, um, i feel like you all really did a lot of homework um before this and have a lot of prep and stuff that's high praise from a professor. I did a lot of homework. No, literally yes. nobody in your position in society has ever said that to me in my life. This is thrilling. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Jody. This is this was a blast, and I I've encourage a lot. I encourage all you fucking peasants out there to read uh, to read this goddamn article. And you, uh, Jody has some great lectures on YouTube that we're also going to link to in the show. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you guys. I enjoyed it. you cool cats who made it to the outro my name is uh the salamander <laughs> that's to gonna be on wikipedia i'm here to slither under your rock and lie around for a while borrow some money from you maybe spend it maybe get your <laughs> credit card number spend that maybe get your social security number sell that maybe give you a kiss <laughs> That's a good new character, right? The salamander, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Mister Slithers, very like, me. very meth, like Er Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. He's a salamander. You oh, know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. I hope he runs. I'm thinking. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? A, runs for what? He's isn't he like running for governor of Texas or something? For governor? Yeah, something like no that. No way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, he should absolutely I, do that. I, I just got there's a. I'll tell you about it after the show, but he's. I, there's another podcast did an episode on his audiobook, which was very fucking funny. He has it's an insa- audiobook? It's in- insane. Yeah. And he does it. He does. Of course he does it. Yeah. I mean, why else would you listen to an audiobook by McConaughey? Can you imagine? You're like, okay, sitting down, ready. You got your little cup of joe ready, mm-hmm. getting cozy. Turn on the Matthew McConaughey audiobook that you ordered, and it's not his voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's me. <laughs> or it's like a guy approximating his voice. Like, or no, I it's just like try. some, just like, hello. Yeah. We're chapter one. <laughs> it's just like totally sober, blank voice. Um, I often record myself uh, reading books and then play it back to myself. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cute. Mm-hmm. It's so I can get better at podcasting. You don't do like <laughs> podcasts like training like that? <laughs> no. 
Do you yeah. have like, do you, are there splits? Do you do like certain, like, is there like a certain training you do on Monday, certain training you do on Wednesdays? Yeah. I do and section on Monday and section on Tuesday and section on Wednesday and section on Thursday. On Friday, I actually do James Mason from the book Siege. Uh, and then Saturday, I do David Foster Wallace and some other sexist guys. And then on Sunday, of course, I do the classic. Um, uh, it's Mussolini's wife's uh, autobiography. On that note, I'm Liz. My name is Canciano. We're joined, of course, by producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is called Truanon. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Well, I don't even think we're in the 1890s yet, baby. No, no. We're in we're in fucking 1320, motherfucker. You are a surf. <laughs> Bitch, you live in Alsace. You are a peasant. You need to give your fucking lord the grain. Your your fucking children, you've had 15 children. You've never taken a bath. You've literally never washed your penis. You're fucking at you've never used toilet paper. Motherfucker, you have worms. You are dying. You've had 40 children. Three of them are alive. Two of them are child soldiers in the Duke's army. Bitch, the greatest thing you can hope for is to die at the ripe age. Oh, excuse me. The old age of 36. You you fucking can't read. You fucking, you don't know what TV is. You, you are literally, if you were transporting today, you would be the worst gamer of all time. You don't know shit. You literally probably don't even know what the direction left is. So, I'm sure some medieval guy is going to get mad at me for this. Bitch, I've been to the Renaissance Fair. I have eaten a large turkey wing, which the juggalos call bitch beaters, which I think is, is problematic, but a funny thing to call them. Motherfucker, you gotta, or, you gotta recognize where you are, and then you gotta get past that. You gotta be, you gotta be unemotional i mean i know i'm not being a great a great uh you know display of that myself but you got it you you can't sink into this hole you live in the oubliette your job is to crawl up the ladder motherfucker you live in the hole you're in the hole you are a rat and the rat when he's in the hole gets fucked oh people only throw trash in the hole you know what you need to eat you need to eat a body and you need to carry the plague and you need to carry a plague around this whole world that will change this whole fucking world. And and, and 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 all your enemies will vomit black bile and they will choke on blood and grow boils and die. But only if you get together with your other rats and you come up with some kind of super plague to fucking end your enemies and end this nightmare. <laughs>